We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Please open to John 15, 1 through 17. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withered. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burn. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and applied in His. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friend if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command, so that you will love one another. Morning. So a lot of you may know I'm, uh, I'm working through an introduction to theology class with about 50 of our members on Sunday mornings over at the Rhino down the street. And so today I had about an hour and a half lecture on the doctrine of God, and I could feel my voice leaving towards the end of that lecture. And I thought to myself, I can't sing this morning. Save your voice for the sermon. Don't sing. And if you've learned anything about Emmaus, this is what you've learned. Good luck with that. Seriously, with, with songs like that, with, with language, Sam, I don't know where you are, with language in the liturgy, my man, about having an appetite for holiness. Are you kidding me? Good luck not singing. That our sins were as free from our sins as the Son of Man is free from sin. Whew. Man, good luck not singing when you hear truth like that. So, that being said, give me grace. My voice is uh, tired this morning. 
Uh, I'm excited to be with you all. Uh, one thing you might know about Emmaus is that we believe in what we call expository preaching. What that means, simply, is that we think preaching happens best when we just open up a book of the Bible and walk straight through it. Verse by verse, by verse by verse. Chapter after chapter after chapter. Walking straight through it, not skipping any section in it, and just walking through every clause, every sentence of the book. Right? We think that's the best and primary way that Christian preaching should happen for multiple reasons. And one of them is that it saves me as a pastor It saves us as a pastoral team, as a body of teaching elders, from preaching only our hobby horses. What it does is it makes us preach the whole council. It makes us. I don't get a choice to skip the hard passages. right? Because there are those passages that you read, and they're either extremely hard to understand, or they're extremely hard to explain. And hear me, it's tempting. It's tempting as a pastor who likes theology and likes doctrine and likes the Bible like I do, it's tempting to want to skip those because they're hard. Today's passage is the exact opposite of that. It's the utter opposite of exactly of what I just said. Honestly, today's passage is the, is, is the type of passage when we were planning the book of John, we decided as, as elders that we're going to preach through John so the pastors get together and we start marking out, okay, this week we're going to preach these verses. This week we're going to preach these verses. And we always ask the question, are there any that you guys are just like, I have to have that one. And I was like, John 15. I have to have John 15. And we've, we've moved, we've scrambled. I've taken some of Hedger's sermons. Sam's taken some of my sermons, vice versa. And this is the one I said, don't you dare try to take this one. This is the one I want. But here's the problem with a text this good. The problem, if there can be one, with a text this good, is that when I started to prepare the sermon, as I started to think about what I was going to say, I thought about what I was going to write, here's what I realized. I'm just going to mess this up. Like, what I need to do is I need to stand up, I need to read it, I need to say good day, and I need to scram. Because this thing is just too good. Moreover, not only is this passage just beautiful in and of itself, it speaks about my favorite Christian teaching, the doctrine of union with Christ. If you know me at all, you knew exactly where this sermon was going. Sam knew it. I could see it in the liturgy. Union was everywhere. Union with Christ. We should all have those truths in our life that, that are somewhat like an old friend to us, right? Do you, do you have one? A Christian teaching, a Christian doctrine, a piece of theology that is something like an old friend to you. So when your soul is weary, you visit the old friend. When, when your mind is telling you that, that you're, you're, you're a shame, that, that you don't match up, that you, you're not enough, you visit the old friend. When your heart is telling you that you are still condemned and you live outside of the forgiveness of God, you visit the old friend. Union with Christ is my old friend. I visit this friend often. I think about this friend often. And this is the friend I rely on to push me back. This is the friend I rely on more often than not to simply say, it's okay. Christ has got you, Ronnie. It's okay. This is my friend. I, I want to, to show you a glimpse, even just to pull the curtain back a little bit so you can see some of its beauty this morning. So let's, let's pray for that endeavor, and let's jump into the text and do so. God, we come into the room of broken people. What I know sitting in front of me are hearts that are prone to disbelief, are minds that are prone to shame, are personalities that are prone to doubt your goodness. And so here's what I pray this morning. I pray that as we walk through John 15, a word that you inspired, that you would win this morning. That you would overcome skeptical minds, that you would overcome cold hearts, that you would overcome distance that we feel from you, that you would overcome our shame, that you would overcome our guilt, that you would win this morning. 
Lord, we want to revel in the fact that you've united us to yourself. And in our reveling, we want to look horizontal and see how we can love others. You've brought us near, so may we be near to our brothers and sisters. Lord, we love you. We need you. May you preach a better word than I prepared this morning. May you convict and comfort and would you save. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So, you're not a first century Jew. I don't know if you knew that. If you were, that sentence would hit you like a freight train. Right? But instead of being a first century Jew, you are a 21st century American. Good job. To to a first century Drew, a first century Drew, I guess, if your name is Drew and you live in the first century, that would hit you like a ton of bricks. To anyone else, though, they wouldn't know what it meant. To a first century Jew, and possibly Drew, whoever he is, this is a big sentence. I am the true vine. Vineyard language runs all over the Old Testament. All over. Let me just... Quickly read to you a few. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. Those are just a few. This language, this imagery of of, of a vine permeates the Old Testament. It's all over the pages. And typically, it, 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 it shows two things when the Old Testament uses vineyard language. One, the vine is almost always in the Old Testament synonymous with the people of Israel. Right? So Israel is the vine in the Old Testament. Israel is the vine. Furthermore, it typically is an indictment against the people of Israel. They're the vine who didn't bear fruit. Right? They're the vine that needs to be cut off. They're the vine who foreign armies will come and take over. Right, so they are a worthless vine, a fruitless vine. So Jesus steps into this Old Testament analogy and says this, I am the true vine. All right, this is the last of the I am statements of John. We've seen a ton of them already, right? I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is the last one. I am the true vine. So, so he's saying two things. This is very important for us. He's saying... Israel, you have totally put your identity and your ethnic nationality. No more. I'm your new personality. I'm your new identity marker. I am the true vine. And not only is he doing that, not only is he placing himself above the nation of Israel as the fulfillment of the nation of Israel, he's stepping directly into their mess. I am the true vine, such that you have messed this up over and over and over. You didn't bear fruit. And here I am, the true vine. This would have hit the Jews like a ton of bricks. This is a mighty claim of Jesus. So so, so just think about how Jesus is flipping what they know on its head. Think about this. The first century Jew has been awaiting a Messiah for a long time. right? And, and he sees the plight of his people. The plight of nation of Israel is that they are have been in captivity after captivity after captivity, and now they're owned by Rome. Gentiles own them. So to a first century Jew, the Savior was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to co- politically set them free. They've been awaiting this guy they thought would come with, with, with trumpets and with, a, with an army, a legion behind him who's going to take down Rome and set them free politically. This is what they're waiting for. And what do they get? They get a baby from Galilee, right? Nazareth to be specific. Nothing good comes from there. Who has to be dependent on his mother to feed him because he's a baby. They don't get a political warrior king. They get a baby who will grow up 
and let himself be killed by Rome. This is totally subversive to them. So when he says, I am the true vine, he is making a massive statement. He will be tortured. He will be crucified. He will die an embarrassing death, by the way. The cross isn't just a gruesome death. It's an embarrassing death in the first century. This whole thing, the whole message of Christianity is gloriously humiliating. He is the true vine. He is stepping up. So they have these kinds of categories ringing in the back of their mind as they hear this simple sentence. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, Jesus is the vine, he's the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. So you have the vine, you have the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me, that is in the vine, Jesus, that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. But every branch that is in me, we'll go back to that language in just a second, every branch that is in me, that is in Jesus, the true vine, that does bear fruit, the Father prunes. This right here is phenomenal because there are two types of branches that receive two different kinds of action, right? The ones who don't bear fruit, the ones who do bear fruit. The ones who don't bear fruit are taken away by the vine dresser, the Father. The ones who do bear fruit are pruned. We're going to come back to those who don't bear fruit because verse 6 speaks to them specifically and very horrifying ones. But let's look at those who do bear fruit. They're, they're pruned by the vine dresser. And this, this is a fascinating choice of words, right? So he's just, he's just advancing the vineyard vine analogy by bringing in this understanding, this verb of pruning. But what's fascinating is the verb prune is used for those who bear fruit. Not those who don't. Those who do bear fruit. In this, I think, in this, we see the death, the, the utter dismantling of prosperity theology. Right? Prosperity theology that you will see all over, right? In the Walmart aisle of Christianity and on, on, on news and on cable television with TV evangelists who, who will say things like, if you're just good enough, if you try hard enough, if you believe enough, your pigs won't die and you'll be healthy. Like just enough faith, just enough belief, just enough good works might mix into this hocus-pocus style thing where you will be both healthy and wealthy. And to that, John 15 says, no. It's those who are bearing fruit. I don't know, I'm not a, uh, I don't come from a vineyard background. I've never pruned anything, I don't think. And uh, I'm very foreign to what that world entails and what that means. And so you do, I did what everyone does when they want to learn how to do something. You YouTube it. So there I am. I just want to see what pruning even means. YouTube, how to prune a vineyard. Homeboy comes out with a big old chopper. And I think, oh, that's pruning. Okay. He's not, he's not about to pat the vine on the back and say, good job. We're going to get a lot of wine out of you. He just starts chomping away. <sighs> He has this whole like system that the berry's got to be two knuckles up. And I'm like, what? Trees have knuckles? That's weird. I don't understand any of this. And he's just chomping away with these huge, like what look to be bolt cutters. Right? So we're not talking about a soft, cushiony enterprise here. We're talking about cutting away. And it's those, the faithful ones, the ones who are bearing fruit, that are being chopped by these bolt cutter-esque things. By the Father. And what does He do it for? The text tells us. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So while many of us would intellectually deny prosperity theology, we functionally submit to it all the time. All of the time. Right? When something bad happens, and we just assume God's punishing us. Right? This is a form of prosperity theology. And, and look, we're prone to go here. Let me be utterly transparent with you. 
I want kids. We're having trouble having them. In my darkest days, it is easy to get there. God will not permit me children for something I've done in the past. Man, it's easy to get there. I have all the right categories and proper theology in my mind to combat it, and there I sit, thinking he's punishing me when his son was utterly punished on my behalf. Or the flip side of it, something bad happens to us, and we think, what? Why me? I've been reading my Bible. I've been going to church. I've even helped an old lady across the street. Why does this happen to me? It makes sense if it happens to them, but not me. Listen, that's living the prosperity gospel. You might not intellectually believe it, but you're living it. To that, John 15 says, no, it's the faithful who are pruned. The ones who are bearing fruit are pruned. We must have a working concept of the Father's pruning in our understanding of the Christian life. We have to have a working category for that. We worship the type of God who is sovereign enough to use tragedy for triumph. Often pruning is painful. Often it is. But notice that it leads to more fruit. Allow God's providential and often painful pruning to be a sweet melody to your ears. He has you. Pain will come, but He has you. Remember the psalmist's cry, when the breakers crash over me, He remembers what? You're the one who made the waves. You're the one who made the waves. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So he continues the vineyard metaphor here. And I love that in verse 5. Just in case we were utterly missing the whole vineyard metaphor, he just spells it out for you. He says, hey, just in case you don't, you don't get it, here we go. I'm the vine, you're the branches. All right, he's spelling it out for us. I, uh, <laughs> I literally thought to myself, will I tell this joke in the sermon? Decided, no, here I am. <laughs> so many of you are like, amen, that's me like six times a day. Uh, that Stephen Colbert, who is a really um, funny, kind of strange uh, show, late show host who is a devout Catholic, he was once interviewing a, a scholar who truly, truly denies the Bible in every way, thinks this is a total myth. This, this scholar says, there's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus claims divinity. And Stephen Colbert says, oh yeah, how about I am divine and you debranches? <laughs> Not quite what the verse means. But he continues the metaphor, the vineyard metaphor. I am the vine, and you are the branches. So, so, so it's this moment in the text that we get to the, the beauty of union with Christ. This is where we get to visit my old friend, and I'm excited to introduce you. This is where we see it. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So allow me then with this section of the text to do this. Let me give you a very simple definition of union with Christ. And then two of the thousands of reasons that I love it. I just want to explain two of them. Okay? Can you permit me that? Good. You don't have a choice. Okay, quick definition. The doctrine of union with Christ teaches us this, that we are one with Christ. That we are one with Him. We are found in Him. He has made Himself one. The worm became one with incarnate deity, as we so often sing here. Right? He made us one. So, so here's a story. I've, you, you might have heard it before. I've told it a couple of times. But it's a helpful illustration of what this means. Uh, my, my mother passed away about six months ago. 
And uh, before she passed away, the previous Mother's Day, um, I, I attempted to share the gospel with her. I, I knew that her health was, was, was waning. If you know anything about my backstory, I, kinda, I come from a, a kind of a strange family. Broken doesn't quite feel like the right word, just strange is a better word. My, my mother dropped out of school in seventh grade, and so she had a very hard time reading and writing. She had a very hard time uh, with, with proposition. She had a very hard time thinking through arguments. And so if my explanation of the gospel to her was ever multi-layered propositions, she was out, right? And, and that's hard because you, you first have to understand that you're a sinner before you understand the need of a Savior. And so we're talking multi-propositions already in that alone. So my wife and I calculated some couple ways that we could try to share the gospel with my mom before she passed away. And one, we were sitting at this very podunk, probably should be shut down kind of Thai food place. And if you know me, that's weird. I, I do not like anything that doesn't sound like or look like a hamburger. So we're sitting there at this place, and I had a Mother's Day card. And on the card itself had a bunch of roses, right? So it's this cute little Mother's Day card, had a bunch of roses on it. And then there was an envelope in it. And we put it inside the envelope, and we wrote Mom on it. And we gave it to her. And I was kind of waiting for the right moment to kind of spring into a basic gospel presentation for my mom. And I, I used the card as an explanation of this doctrine of union with Christ. So I said to her, so, so mom, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the roses on this card as sin. Right? So if this card is a person, do they have sin? And I flipped it back and forth. There's roses all over it. And she says, yeah, it's, it's covered in roses. She said, yes, this is exactly like us. You and I are completely covered. We're tainted with sin. Roses, metaphorical roses all over us. So when you look at this card, you see roses. When God looks at us, he sees the sin. That's all there. And I put the card inside of the envelope, closed it, and I said, Mom, how many roses do you see? And she said, none. This is the glory of union with Christ. Right? In the same way, the envelope envelops the card. And it swallows the card such that the roses are no longer viewable. Christ swallows us. We are in Him. We trade our, our rags of wrath for His robes of righteousness, and He throws them on us. Such that when the Father views us, He doesn't see the sin. He sees the obedience of His Son which surrounds us. This is union with Christ. We're made one with Him. So let me tell you two reasons. That wasn't one of the reasons I love it, as if that wasn't enough. Two reasons. Both things that I struggle to believe, both things that my old friend preaches to me when I'm doubting, that we see in this text as well. Proximity. If you're a note taker, here they are. Proximity and security. Union with Christ speaks a gospel word about proximity and a gospel word about security. So let's start with proximity. If you're anything like me, there are times when you feel very distant from God. And those times are really painful. Are those seasons of life when God feels really far away? Those are painful seasons, are they not? Prayer is hard. Reading is hard. Coming to church is very difficult. Being around other Christians is like the last thing you want to do. And you just feel distant from God. That happens. And hear me, that happens for a reason. Left to ourselves, we want to run away from God. In our flesh, our propensity isn't towards the things of God. It's away. That's where we want to go as people. Right? Think about this. In our story alone, right? just a few weeks ago, what did we see? Right? We're in the farewell discourse. Sam said, Pastor Sam said very helpfully, chapters 13 through chapter 17 of the book of John happen in just a few hours of one another. Right, This is the farewell discourse. Jesus is basically saying for a few chapters goodbye to the disciples. In his leaving them, he says, one of you will betray me. To which Peter, 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 says, not me. No way will I leave you. And Jesus says, oh, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, I'll die first. Peter doubles down on this ridiculous promise. I'll die before I deny you. And then he shifts blame. They might deny you, Jesus, but I'm here. 
Ride or die, Peter. I ain't going nowhere. And then guess what? What are we about to see in less than 24 hours? Jesus is arrested. Where Peter cuts off a guy's ear, so we'll at least give him some credit. Like he did seem to be kind of ride or die. But then he's brought, he's brought before the people, and he's, he's found guilty. And a woman sitting next to Peter says, Hey, weren't you one of his disciples? And what does he say? That unbelievably crushing sentence. I don't know that man. I don't know him. Right, left to his own strength, Peter, after being with Jesus in the farewell discourse, is running away from him. I don't know that man. That's the cry of our flesh left to itself. Moreover, I don't want that man. And look what union with Christ does to it. Right? Christian salvation is, is the most beautiful truth you have ever heard. Of. Right? Because here, listen, we were enemies of God. Ephesians 2 says we were far off from Him. There's the distance. What did He do? He made enemies into tolerable? No. That's not what He does. Jesus doesn't save us and say, okay, all right, now you're not going to hell, but I never want to see you again. Right? You, you stay over there, I'll stay over here, don't look at me. That's not what he does. It's, the gospel is a story of an ever-increasing, ever-undeserving proximity to Jesus. He makes enemies friends, brings friends into his church, brings those who are in his church into his family, and it gets so close, we even become one. The gospel is a story of undeserved proximity. Enemy, friend, churchman, son and daughter, one. Man, union with Christ utterly dismantles the shameful distance that we so often feel before God. He's taking care of it. He's taking care of it and uniting us to himself. Second, security. The doctrine of union with Christ gives us gospel security. The doctrine of union with Christ should strengthen our security before God, unlike just about any other Christian teaching. Because think about this. If you are in Christ, where He goes, you go. Where you go, He goes. You're one. You see how that works? If you fall, it would take him falling. If he falls, you're gone. You're one with him. So, so hear me. The news that the branches are in the vine is only good news if the vine is worthy. And Christ is most worthy of all. Right? Think, think back to the envelope. This is why every analogy breaks down. Here's, here's why the envelope analogy breaks down. After time, we put the card in the envelope. The roses are covered. We throw it in a drawer because, listen, I can sense my wife isn't here. I can totally get away with saying this. Cards are useless. Them are fighting words in my home. But listen, if you give me four birthday cards, that's probably 15 bucks. You could have bought me a book, which is what I really want. So we get the card. It has an envelope. We throw it in the drawer. And guess what? After time, the envelope starts to tear. It fades a bit. And guess what we start to see? Roses. Through the thinning envelope or through a crack in the seam, we see roses again. But listen, Christ doesn't fade. Christ doesn't rip. He doesn't tear apart of the seams. He won't, he won't thin over time. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. You've been, you've been grafted into a vine who will never fall. This is good news. You can go to sleep at night knowing that when you wake up tomorrow, you'll be a Christian because he's got you. There's security in being united to a vine like Him. When the Father sees us, He sees that we are one. And in that, we're utterly secure. This is why Sam can say in liturgy that we are as free from sin as the Son of Man Himself. Because we're one with Him. So, he says, in this imperative, the command is so vital. Look at it with me. Verse 4. Three words, abide in me. 
Abide in me. If you hear nothing else from this sermon, hear that. You've been united to Christ by faith. You're one in him. The one who breathes out the stars and is the king of the cosmos. He's wrapped you up. In a, so abide. Abide in him. Abide in him. Abide. The branch that isn't abiding can't bear fruit. And we can see this. Look what it says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? What we see is that the vine is the life-giving source, not the branches. The branches are expendable. The vine is the life-giving source. We can do nothing apart from him. Verses 6 through 11. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we said we were going to save those who aren't abiding in in the vine for verse 6. And here we get there. Those who are not abiding in Christ are thrown away. They are gathered and they are collected for the fire. That's the fate of the branches who are non-fruit bearing. Thrown away, gathered, put in the fire. This is heavy. Or we should read a clause like this with heaviness. Scholars are in a bit of a disagreement as to what exactly it means to be gathered for the fire. So some people read that as a, a reference to a literal hell. right? That, that's, that's the fate. That's where they're going. Some people think that's stretching the metaphor just a bit too far. But regardless of what it means, regardless of what you think it means in that sense, we know it means this. Distance from Christ leads to withering and death. Regardless of where you think that branch is going or what exactly that means in the metaphor, we do know this. Being cut off from the life source of Christ means withering and death, which should motivate us in two different directions, right? It should motivate us, one, to cling to Him as the life-giving source, apart from which we can do nothing, not even survive. And call out to the branches, not in the vine. Or we felt it. We felt the life-giving resources that the rich and sturdy and unfading vine gives. How can we not then, as we see branches lying around in the dust around the vine, call out to them and say, live, live, live. Right? All analogies break down, even biblical analogies. Because branches don't say anything to other branches. And here we are with a great commission. Vines Branches who are in the vine who must call out to branches who are not in the vine and say, come, come and live. Come and live. Taste and see that the vine, that's where there's life. So, for those branches that bear fruit, it leads to two things. One, the Father is glorified in the text. And two, we prove to be Jesus' disciples. Did you see that? So I love that Jesus here mentions the glory of God. I think for many of us, that's an endeavor that if it happens, good. But if it doesn't, that's okay. No, the New Testament, the story of Christianity won't have you be apathetic towards the Father's glory. Right? It will make it your all-encompassing end. And that's what we can do. It serves as a needed reminder of why we bear fruit in the first place. Remember, if we don't bear fruit, it's because we're not attached to the vine. So how silly and ridiculous would it be if we bear fruit and we hold it up for others to see and we say, look what I did. Look at it. It's awesome. That would be ridiculous to seek the applause of man because of the fruit we're bearing. Because what did it say? We can do nothing apart from the vine. The praise, if our fruit receives any praise from anyone, any angle ever, is directed directly to the Father. We bear fruit 
that the Father may be glorified and that we would prove to be his disciples. That's the second reality. Our fruit proves that we are Jesus' disciples. This is important, especially for American Christians. For decades, an American form of Christianity has been propagated that says that Jesus is definitely the Savior, but isn't Lord. Right? He's the God of our conversion, but not the God of our life. Right, so, so this plays out in churches across the country saying, if you want to be a Christian, just raise your hand or come pray this prayer or walk down an aisle. And that's all it takes. From that moment on, you have fire insurance. No more hell for you. Go on, my child. You are a Christian. Right, and we count, we count our conversion numbers and we report to our denominational entities, we've converted 6,000 people this year. That is not Christianity. Right? And largely, what evangelism looks like in the Bible Belt is first helping people see that's not Christianity. Jesus is the Lord of our life, not just our conversion. Our fruit proves that we're disciples, not a science card. Our, our, our fruit proves that we're disciples, not how many times we've asked Jesus into our heart. But there's another danger to this, isn't there? The danger to this is that we get the order mixed up. And we see this in American Christianity as well. Right? That I bear fruit so that I can be a branch. No. We bear fruit because we're branches. Jesus is about to say, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Right? I gave you faith. You didn't, you didn't just make this. I permitted it. I permitted you being a branch. I chose you. So hear me, in Christianity, position always comes before practice. The indicative, or what is true, always comes before the imperative, what must be done. We are in Christ, therefore we bear fruit. Position in Christ, bear fruit. Practice. It's never we bear fruit so that we can be in Christ. All right, fine, look at, look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I love that this is in here and we have to fly through this sadly. But Christianity isn't the type of religion that calls you to begrudgingly obey a set of rules that don't lead to life. No, on the contrary, a Christian life with the pruning of God and all leads to joy. A Christian becomes dangerously gifted at glorifying God when God's commands become their happy choice. Dangerously gifted at glorifying Him. 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Great love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed to you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. That you love one another. Remember back a few weeks when Pastor Sam started chapters 13 through 17. He gave us three themes to watch for, right? Do you remember them? The glory of the Trinity the inability of the flesh, and the command to love one another. In this text, we have all three. The glory of the Trinity, the inability of the flesh, and the command to love one another. We have the glory of the Trinity, and the fact that Jesus is divine, and the Father is the vine dresser, and this whole pericope comes right after Jesus says He's sending the Helper. And all of our fruit bearing is for the glory of the Father, which we've seen glorifies the Son, the glory of the Trinity, accounted for. The inability of the flesh. What did Jesus say? You can do nothing apart from being in the vine. The inability of the flesh. And here we come to the last thing. Loving one another. This, my friends, is a major theme in 13 through 17. If you are um, tired of hearing that, get ready. Because it hasn't even landed with its full force yet. The, the command to love one another doesn't really hit until John 17. So it's not going anywhere. 
And then he explains to them, what does it mean to love one another? And he says, love as I've loved you. And then he says this line, and don't miss this. Don't miss your Bible chronology. The cross hasn't happened yet. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He knows exactly what he's talking about when he says that. They utterly miss it, but he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's about to do exactly that. Lay down his life for his friends. And I love that that verse 15 carries that and says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. So he's just said, love is laying down your life for your friends. And oh, by the way, you are my friend. Man, that we would hear that. And listen to this. Even if Christ called us servants in this verse, which he doesn't, he calls us friends, that would be more grace than we could ever deserve. For we went from enemy to servant. But the gospel takes a step for enemy to friend. He concludes with one more assurance and a repetition of the command. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, love one another. So as we, as we close then, let me just, let me just end with a couple of pastoral exhortations, if I'm, thanks. First, Christian, abide in Christ. We are frail people who suffer from spiritual forgetfulness, which often leads us to believe that God is not for us. Remember, He has brought you near, so near that you've been made one with Him. Don't work to gain the Father's approval. You'll never earn it. Rather, abide in the One who has eternally earned the Father's approval on your behalf. Maybe for the first time ever, what I'm telling you to do in your Christian life is just read. Christ has you. Abide in him. Second, Christian, go to sleep secure. You are a branch in the most sturdy of vines. He will not fail. He will not fall. He has the identity that it takes to save you to the uttermost. He will never fail. We are in him. So you can go to sleep knowing that it isn't your strength that ensures you wake up the next day a Christian. It's the vines. Go to sleep secure. And finally, Christian, love one another. Again, we're not done with this point. Jesus is going to make this the main theme of the high priestly prayer on our behalf in John 17. I, I can steal that thunder because that's my passage. I'll be preaching that one. The main thing Jesus prays for us is that we would glorify the Father by loving one another. It's going to hit home heavy in 17. And then finally to the non-believer. As it stands, you, non-Christian, are not in the vine. You're not in the vine. We saw the fate of the branches who are detached from the life source. We saw that. They wither and they die. So we, not just me, we as a church, if you're a non-believer in the room, we implore you, come live. Come live. Taste the vine. We can't promise that everything will be easy. In fact, we can promise pruning. It's often going to be hard. We can't promise easiness or comfort, but we can promise verse 11 that your joy will be full. We can promise verse 8 that your repentance will glorify the Father. We can promise pruning. And though it may hurt for a moment, it's eternally worth it. So church, I love you. We love you as your pastors. Our our encouragement to you this week is abide in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We, We ask that you would be with us in this endeavor. May we, for a moment, maybe even for some of us the first time in our lives, may we just rest. Stop the white knuckling through Christianity thing. Stop trying to prove ourselves before you and before others. Stop trying to earn a salvation that you've already given. May we just rest in you. And in our resting, may our joy be stirred that we would happily obey your commands. 
that in obedience to your commands, we would bear fruit, that the world would glorify the Father, and that we would prove to be your disciples. That's what we need. So Lord, bring this truth to our minds multiple times this week, that we've been united to Christ. A position will never come close to deserving, and a position on this side of heaven will never come close to truly even understanding. You're good. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every week here at Emmaus, we end our time in communion. Um, and it's very intentional that that's the way it is. We want you, as a gospel-needy people, we want ourselves, as gospel-needy pastors, to receive the gospel as many times as possible. Every service. So you've heard the gospel preached, and now we want to see the gospel in front of us. So if you're a believer in the room, if you've experienced that uniting to Christ, if you're a branch bearing fruit, who's united to Christ by faith, we would ask that you come down this side, come to one of the three tables, and go back this way. And if you're not, this has kind of become the new thing to say as we administer communion, and I like it. If you're not a believer, don't come. If you would say, I haven't been united to Christ by faith, don't come. But instead, do this. Mark one of us with your eyes. Say, I'm going to ask that one, that person, this random person. I'm going to ask them what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be united to him. Because listen, if they're coming, taking communion, they're declaring to you that they're a Christian. If they're a Christian, they know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you don't got to have high-flying, fancy words. You just tell someone about how you were once dead and now you're alive. So mark one of us. Don't come and take the bread and juice. Take Jesus. Church, we love you. Come and take Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.